Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host. Hello, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. Our podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, a leading ABA provider serving families across the country. I'm your host, Katherine Johnson. My guest today is one of my personal favorite authors. Simon Baron Cohen is a clinical psychologist and professor of developmental psychopathology at the University of Cambridge in England. He's the director of the university's Autism Research Center and a fellow of Trinity College. Baron Cohen has been doing research connected with autism for 35 years and has made major contributions, such as his mind blindness theory that has informed how we teach theory of mind. I got to sit down and talk to him about his new book, The Pattern Seekers, which shows connections between the autistic brain and human invention. I could have easily talked to Simon for hours. He's so thoughtful, has such compassion, and is a wonderful storyteller. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Simon Baron Cohen, thank you for sitting down to talk with me today. It's a great pleasure and thank you for inviting me. First of all, congratulations on your new book, The Pattern Seekers. Um, I, it sort of strikes me that for someone who has quite an important job and just writes on the side, you kind of published a lot of books. Um, so this is the third um, popular science book that I've written. Um, and you're right. I mean, my day job is primarily research and teaching. So uh, this kind of uh, writing for a wider audience to, to communicate what we're, what we're publishing in the, the more specialist scientific journals, but to kind of make it more accessible. Pretty a kind of um, a sideline for me, but it's, I think it's important. I agree. And I actually, I, I was really impressed by how readable it is. You know, you're, you're talking about brain science and yet, you know, I couldn't put it down. It was, it was so interesting. And I, I really felt like you had a very good way of, of kind of explaining it to those of us who are not brain scientists. That's very kind of you. I mean, I guess what I'm wanting to do is um, not just write for fellow scientists. So when we, when as scientists, when we publish articles in specialist technical journals, we're really writing for a kind of tiny, like a niche audience. And, you know, that, you know, the, the danger there is that you end up with, you know, knowledge in the hands of a few, as opposed to what you might think of as democratizing knowledge, making it very accessible so that it can be you know part of a, a wider conversation particularly when it when it comes to if you're doing research with people and with particular communities like the autism community you know you need to make sure that you're building trust between the scientists and the people they study um, and you're listening to the autism community and the the ideas can be can be de debated you know in a two-way conversation so the majority of your book is a discussion around what you call the brain's systemizing mechanism. Can you first just tell us what that is? Yeah, so in the book, I suggest that about 100,000 years ago, um, a new circuit, a new module evolved in the modern human brain. I call it the systemizing mechanism. And basically what this does is it allows humans, and I argue no other species, 
to look for very special kinds of patterns. Um, I call them if and then patterns. And that's a kind of uh, a, a way of thinking that's all about logic. You know, mm -hmm. if I take one thing and I perform an operation on it, then I see what happens. It's a kind of causal, logical way of thinking. And as far as I can see, and this is the claim in the book, this kind of logic underpins invention, that humans seem to be the only species that actually produces what I call generative invention. So not just doing something once, which could be by chance, but doing, you know, coming up with new systems, new patterns over and over again. And that autistic people, you know, seem to be drawn to these kind of patterns. Um, you know, they have a strong interest in patterns, particularly this logical if and then pattern. And so the book is like an exploration of, you know, what is the link? Is there a link mm -hmm. between autistic people and the very human capacity for invention? So can we just, I just want to ask you about this if and then mm. model. So one of the examples that you shared in your book was that there is a hawk that actually lights fires or mm. spreads fires to the end of getting mice to sort of scatter so that it, it can um, have yeah. some easy hunting. Can you explain why that's not if and then? Well, the thing is, um, there's all kinds of things that non-human animals do that we might be tempted to interpret mm -hmm. as either invention or as quite complex tool use. And there's no question that other animals, whether we're talking about birds or monkeys or apes or um, or octopus, you know, as I discuss in the book, you know, mm -hmm. lots of animals can use tools, but they tend to be quite simple tools. And I think they can do this using a different mechanism. So in psychology, there's a lot of research into what's called associative learning, where you associate two things, A with B. Lots of animals can do this, you know, pigeons can do it, rats can mm -hmm. do it, humans do it, right? Mm -hmm. And and that is the basis of a lot of learning. So in your in the example of what you just brought up, these firehawks, you know, they they take a flaming twig and they fly over a field and they drop it. And as the little mice scatter, they swoop down and 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 get their lunch. Fascinating. And the, and the thing is. When we look at other examples of tool use, that's a particularly impressive one because we always think that fire is again uniquely human, or yeah, at least in the the sort of Homo ancestors, if not Homo sapiens, but in in our line of of heritage, if you like. So it's kind of surprising to hear that a bird might be using fire. Yeah, but actually, if you look at any other non-human animal tool use, let's take a chimpanzee who uses a rock to crack a nut. Again, they're using the rock, particular action. So that's A, and it's associated with B, which is getting the nice juicy fruit from mm -hmm. the nut. And particularly when they, when B is a reward, you know, it leads to getting something that you want like food, mm -hmm. uh, that learning tends to get repeated. And I think that can explain a lot of apparent non-human animal tool use, including these kind of things that look like invention, but they are one-off. You mm -hmm. know, you could, you could just learn the association by chance, 
and then keep repeating it. So those hawks don't come up with lots and lots of types of invention. They just have this one trick that they do. Just like your dog might have a particular trick that it does, mm -hmm. but it's not inventing all the time. Whereas what seems to be true of humans is we don't just invent once, we invent, you know, um, kind of unstoppably, some of us more than others. And so this sort of if and then model mm. being applied to all sorts of things uh, you list in your book. So um, mm. I think you said well, agriculture and yeah. obviously math and science and but but other things as well. Yeah, I mean, um, basically the systemizing mechanism in the brain looks for these patterns, plays with these patterns. So that's really the kind of the, the, the root of invention is that you, you take one sequence of if and then, and then you can play with one or other of those variables. So the if is what engineers call the input, mm -hmm. and the and is what engineers call the operation. And then the then is what engineers call the output. So you're taking an input, performing an operation, and then looking to see how that changes the output. Uh, you know, I use the terms if and then because that's uh, the way logicians talk about it. But you're right, you can apply that to almost any, any input. So we could take, my favorite example in evolution is the earliest musical instrument, which was a flute made out of a hollow bird bone. And it was, and it's, it's dated to about 40,000 years ago. Oh my goodness. And, if, and if we think about the if and then logic, mm -hmm. so imagine that the person who invented this first musical instrument, you know, they would say, if I blow down this hollow bone and I cover one hole, then I get a particular sound. And if I blow down the bone and I uncover the hole, so now we're kind of changing one of the variables, then I get a different note. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you've got a new invention, a new tool, which I argue is a complex tool. It's not like the hammer to crack a nut. It's something more complex because it involves this very causal logic. And what we see in, in humans, and I think no other species, is playing with these variations, playing with the if, playing with the mm -hmm. and to see what, to see what, what uh, new patterns you can create. And that's why the title of the book is The Pattern Seekers. And so people who have been diagnosed with autism are particularly drawn to these patterns, you say. And you give this example um, in the book of, of Jonah, who is a little boy at recess, examining all of these leaves and actually coming up with the same taxonomy that <laughs> scientists over many years had to, to actually classify these leaves. Exactly. So, you know, that's an example where... You know, a lot of autistic kids and, um, you know, many of us know somebody who's autistic or have somebody in our family who's autistic. You know, we see them doing these intelligent things out in the garden or out in the yard at school, kind of looking at nature, collecting things. Sometimes they might be collecting stones or leaves or, you know, or little bugs. Um, and they're kind of fascinated by what's the difference? And that kind of classifying of nature, as Jonah, this little autistic boy, was doing in, the, in the, the character in my book, you know, he was saying, you know, if it's got this particular pattern with this 
these features, then it's this kind of leaf. So he was classifying leaves into different categories. And that's another example of the, uh, I suppose, one of the benefits of the systemizing mechanism is that it allows humans to classify, classify the world, to understand and order the world, to try and understand, like, where does all this variation come from? Much like a little scientist. And so how does this interact with or how is this related to what you call the empathy circuit? Yeah, so, you know, I was, I talked about that very early example of an invention, the, the, the first musical instrument. Um, and you might imagine that the person who was making music 40,000 years ago was not just doing it because he or she was playing with patterns and trying to come up with a new system, but they, maybe they were doing it for an audience. You know, maybe they were playing mm -hmm. this music because they wanted to entertain someone who was listening, that they thought it might please someone who was listening, mm -hmm. or that it might interest someone who was listening. You know, and that, that, that kind of way of thinking, when you're thinking about the mind of another person, is what I call empathy. And I think you can find examples in the archaeological record which suggests that empathy is also as old as systemizing. So a second kind of favorite example of mine is the earliest signs of jewelry, uh, which was a necklace made of shells, which is dated about 75,000 years ago. So again, the person who made the jewelry, who made little holes in each shell to thread them together to make a necklace, needed the systemizing mechanism that if I make the hole and I thread um, something through the hole, then I can make a, a necklace. But they may also have been doing it to impress somebody. Mm -hmm. or they may have been making the necklace to as a gift for somebody. Right. So, so I think, you know, it suggests a kind of very early evidence of self-awareness, mm -hmm. of thinking, what would I look like to, to another person? And... Uh, what might another person think about this piece of jewellery, you know? So that could be evidence of a second very important uh, change in the human brain, which I call the empathy circuit. And they evolved around the same time. That's fascinating. Well, I, think, I, I think, you know, all we can do when we try to date things in evolution is look at the archaeological evidence. You know, we can't go back to those early humans, you know, they're, they're long dead, but we can look at what they've left behind. We can look at artifacts that have survived, like the, the shell necklace or like uh, the bone flute. And that gives us a clue that at least as far back as then, individuals must have been able to systemize to use that if and then logic and also think about another person's state of mind, the, the empathy circuit. So you've really done a huge, uh, you, you've embarked upon a huge study called the UK Brain Type Study. How many, mm. there were a lot of people involved in this study, 600,000, yeah. is that right? So there were 600,000 people who were not autistic, so that's just the okay. general population. And then in addition, there were 36,000 people who were autistic, according to how they self-disclosed. Uh, and we invited them to take to to take three questionnaires so one was called the systemizing quotient 
which you know you just indicate how interested you are in different systems mm -hmm. whether it's math or music or natural systems like the weather or mechanical systems like a car engine you know the second was the empathy quotient which is all about how easily you can pick up on what someone else is thinking or feeling and then the third questionnaire was called the autism spectrum quotient which measures how many autistic traits you have and it turns out we all have some autistic traits mm -hmm. that in fact all of these questionnaires give rise to a bell curve in the population so that's to say most people just fall in the average range but there are some people who score super high and some people who score super low on each of these three measures and uh, this big population study was really to try to understand what is the relationship between empathy between and systemizing and autistic mm -hmm. traits and so what you basically did was you took now you're going to have to correct me because I'm not going to get this precisely right, but uh, you took the empathy score and the systematizing systemizing score and looked at the difference between exactly. those two, and then that gives you sort of the idea of do you have yeah a so, systemizing I mean, brain or exactly so so when we looked at how do you score on the first two questionnaires so mm -hmm. empathizing and systemizing. It turns out there are five types of people in any population, five types okay. of brains, you know. And this is very, you know, I'd like to come back to this as an example of neurodiversity. There's, there's different kinds of brains out there. So there are some individuals who score higher on empathy than they do on systemizing. And I call them type E for empathizers. And then there are other people who, are, who score the exact reverse. They score higher on systemizing than they do on empathy. And I call them type S. And that's about a third of the population fall into each of those. So a third are type E, a third are type mm -hmm. S. There's another group which I call type B for balanced, who, who are equally good at empathy and systemizing. And that's another third, right? So that, so that kind of accounts for about 90% of the population. Can and I ask then, what, what, what type of brain Simon Baron-Cohen has? Um, well, because I kind of developed the tests, I couldn't really take them in a kind of impartial way. Because oh, I, I kind of... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would say that because I work in science, it's likely mm -hmm. that I'm sort of more towards the systemizing end. Yeah. Um, just because you have to have you know a love of data and patterns to go into right. science in the first place um but what i was going to say is that there are there are two other groups in the population at the extremes the extreme of type s who are people who are basically systemizing almost non-stop that's what they just love to do they're drawn to patterns mm -hmm. and they find they find them everywhere so their their systemizing is super high but their empathy may only be average or even below average. So I call those also the hyper systemizers. And, uh, and then there's the, other, the mirror opposite of those, which are the extreme of type E, people who can't stop empathizing all the time. Anytime they're with anybody, they're already thinking about what's the other person thinking or feeling. Even when they're not with them, they're imagining what's that person's mm -hmm. state of mind. 
So they're kind of doing that nonstop, but their systemizing might again just be average or below average. And I guess the, the big surprise in, in this big population study was that autistic people tend to be type S, so very much drawn to systems, or extreme type S, so they're hyper-systemizers. They love patterns. And then the second surprise in that study was that when we divided the 600,000 people into people who work in STEM, science, technology, engineering, or math, and those who don't work in STEM, the ones who do work in STEM not only score higher on systemizing, as you'd expect, but they also score higher in terms of autistic traits. Oh, interesting. This, this gave us like the first clue that, that the stronger you are at systemizing or pattern recognition, the more autistic traits you have. So I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that, because when I first had gotten the gist of the book, but I hadn't read it yet, mm -hmm. I had sort of assumed that there would be this sort of one-to-one -one correspondence. You know, if you have an extreme S brain, if you're, if you're a systemizer um, on the extreme end, that you would be autistic, but that's not exactly the way it works. Can you, there's overlap, but it's not. Uh, yeah, it, exactly. So I think, I think, um, you know, to, to need a diagnosis of autism, that means that you're struggling in some way, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to the point of maybe suffering, maybe very unhappy with depression or anxiety, mm -hmm. uh, or, or maybe just not managing in your life. And to, to the extent that either you or your family has taken you to a clinic, either mm -hmm. you've taken yourself to a clinic if you're an adult, uh, or your parents have taken you there if you're a child. So that's why you might end up with a diagnosis. But there are other people in the population who might have an equal number of autistic traits, but they don't really like to chat and socialize. They know that they're not very good at communication, but they just sort of focus on what they are good at. Maybe they find a niche in society where it doesn't really matter if you're not very sociable, you know, um, and so they may never, so they may be quite happy you know, and they may not need to go to a clinic. They may not need a diagnosis. So although autistic people um, tend to be either type S or, type, or extreme type S, there are people with that same profile who don't have a diagnosis of autism. And of course, the other reason why they might not have a diagnosis of autism is if they were living before autism was known about. Right. So, in, so in the book, I explore, you know, some characters in history, like, like Thomas Edison, the inventor of the light bulb. But if you look at his biography, he had a lot of autistic traits. But of mm -hmm. course, in, the, in those days, we didn't know about autism. It hadn't been discovered yet. Right. Um, you know, and of course, he'd found his niche right. know, as an inventor. What are the traits that you see in his biography that sort of lead you to the conclusion that he might have had autism? Well, it's, you know, biographies are kind of, they're not the most reliable source of evidence. You know, that sure. you know, yeah. when, when someone tells the story of someone else's life who's no longer living, all we really have is fragments. Mm. But it seems like he had quite repetitive speech as a child. He would chant uh, the same things over and over again. Mm. Um, he would, he, he, his mother moved him out of school by, you know, late childhood because he really wasn't learning at school. 
So he was homeschooled. And he just spent most of his time in the basement doing experiments with his chemistry set. Um, when he went to the public library, he would read every book, but in sequence as they were on the shelf without missing out any. So he, you know, he was, he was being quite sort of, he was following a rule right. to determine his behavior. Yeah. He, became, he became fascinated by patterns like Morse code and actually mm -hmm. earned a living being able to, you know, um, read Morse code in the days of the telegraph, you know, the early communication systems. Amazing. And, uh, you know, and he even named his first two children Dot and Dash because he loved Morse code so much, you know. So, I mean, you can read into this anything you like. You know, his wife, you know, his wife uh, put a mattress into his workshop because he would stay so late into the night, constantly experimenting with patterns, mm -hmm. trying out different combinations, inventing, you know. So, you know, that almost seemed like it was more important than his marriage, you know. Um, but, you know, we've, we've got to be careful with historical biographies. Yes. You know, Edison's not here to speak up for himself. And that's why in, in our research, I tend to focus on living scientists or um, mm. people who, who we can study today um, to see how they score on these very... So he was pulled out of school, you said, at a, a pretty early age. And, you know, I, that's one of the things that I thought about a lot as I was reading your book. As somebody who's worked in education and worked mm. with educators for a couple mm. of decades, it was just so striking to me that these brain studies are really highlight for us how many people have brains that are outside of what we think of as typical, as a typical brain or typical learning style. And I just, I wonder uh, what, what, do you, what are your thoughts on the implications that this research has on yeah. how yeah. we educate yeah. our children? Absolutely. So I don't know how it is in the US, but I imagine it's pretty similar mm -hmm. to how it is here in the UK, which is that we have kind of um, a single method of educating kids. Yeah. So everybody goes to the same high school, mm -hmm. they have to take the same curriculum. And it's as if, you know, the assumption is that all kids learn in the same way and that one size fits all. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what this study is telling us is that there's at least five different types of brains in any population. We've looked at this across different cultures. We still see, see these patterns. Yeah. And, and, and that there's no such thing as a typical or a normal brain, right? There's many ways that the brain works or functions mm -hmm. or develops. Um, there's many ways that the brain gets wired up. We all end up as adults somehow, but there isn't a kind of <laughs> single so-called normal route to right. adulthood, you know. So, you know, if you remember back to the percentages I was giving you for the different types of brain, you know, the largest of them are about, you know, 30% of the population. So we don't even see like the majority of people falling into one type. So there is no typical brain that sort of 70% of the population has. No, there's, I mean, what we've learned is there's diversity. And this is, you know, again, to use, you know, for me, a, now a very important word, neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. we've, all, we've always known this about, about the natural world. We talk about biodiversity. There's, yeah. no single, there's no single way to be a flower or to be an animal. They come <laughs> in all shapes and sizes and colors. And, you know, but, you know, and, and one isn't better or worse than another. They're mm -hmm. just different. 
And what we're learning about human brains is there's at least five types and there's probably loads more to be discovered. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and, you know, one isn't better or worse. They, you know, we all have our unique profiles of strengths and difficulties or challenges. Um, but we, we all might excel in one environment and then struggle in another environment. So the implications for education is I think we should be trying to identify as early as possible. You know, is this toddler? I think you could probably tell as early as that. You're two or three or two or three years old. Is this yeah. a child who likes to learn in a solitary way by experimenting? You know, playing with objects or out in the garden, kind of just picking up rocks and seeing what's underneath and building things. You know, mm -hmm. or is this a child who likes to learn in groups through communication and you know looking at a teacher's face? These are very different kinds of kids, and we, you know, if we want kids to flourish in education. We need to tailor how we teach them and the mm -hmm. design of the classrooms to the kind of mind that the child arrives with when, when they start school. And so I imagine you have parents with autistic children come to you to say, you know, I, I've got this kiddo and they have this type of brain that you would yeah. call an extreme systemizer. Yeah. And, you know, what do we do in the face of you know, this, this conventional education system that just doesn't fit. What, what is ideal? What's the type of educational environment that would be best for those type of kiddos? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've, the, one of the reasons I wrote this book, The Pattern Seekers, is it's also a kind of a call to action for society because a lot of kids are being failed by the education system. You know, a lot of autistic kids, who, who love to go deeply into one topic and look for the patterns, mm -hmm. look for the facts. You know, they may drop out of high school with no qualifications because then, you know, they don't want to learn in the typical way, the conventional way. They don't want to study eight or 10 different subjects superficially, mm -hmm. which, is what, which is what the kind of general educational mainstream curriculum demands. You do a little mm -hmm. bit of geography and then you every, you know, every 30 minutes you switch to a little bit of history and a little bit of biology and a little bit of French or whatever. That's <laughs> you know, torturous for someone who wants to go deep. Exactly. You know, the, the, the typical learning style for an autistic child or a teenager is that they want to just focus on one thing and really understand it well, you know, and clinicians you know, uh, historically have called this obsessional, that they, right. they, they get stuck on one topic. Mm -hmm. I think we can reframe it in much more positive terms, that they like to specialize. They like to mm -hmm. just do one thing at a time and do it, do it properly, do it thoroughly. And that they, you know, they want to go into things in depth, not in a shallow way. And it gets very frustrating if, if a teacher or, a, you know, um, a timetable at school tells them they've got to stop what they're doing and switch to something else. It's just not mm -hmm. how they learn. So the, the natural implication is that we need to really sort of, you know, have, have a, a range, a diversity of learn of teaching methods mm -hmm. and teaching environments that matches the diversity of brains that come into the classroom. I, I completely agree with you that our conventional educational system in, in this sort of one size fits all um, 
mode is, is definitely failing a lot of our kids. Um, on the flip side, our workforce is also missing out on these highly specialized brains. Yeah. So Can you, you know, talk I, a little bit about where, you know, I mean, these these people who are extreme systematizers, systemizers, yeah. excuse me, yeah, yeah, yeah. extreme sure. systemizers <laughs> um, have a lot to offer. They do. You know, so, so about 20 years ago, uh, I opened a clinic um, here in Cambridge, where I live, um, for, for adults who suspected they might be autistic, but who had missed out on a diagnosis in childhood or in their teens. You know, it was only when they left home and they found they were having difficulties getting a job or yeah. um, maybe getting through college without the support of their parents that they suddenly realized maybe I've got autism. And there, were, there weren't clinics for people like this in the UK and very few in the US as I understand it. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I listened to their stories, many of them had dropped out of high school, so no formal qualifications, uh, and yet they were intelligent. Mm -hmm. On paper, they looked like they had nothing to offer an employer. You know, but if you look at, you know, this might be somebody who's 40 years old and still living with their parents mm -hmm. in their bedroom in the same house that they grew up in and they're doing intelligent things in the bedroom you know they're mm -hmm. taking the computer apart mm -hmm. all the little components all the little variables inside and maybe rebuilding the computer to make it go faster you know mm -hmm. they're clearly they have skills to offer and mm -hmm. yet they're unemployed and the statistics we find here is that the majority of autistic adults are unemployed so the workforce is missing out on their skills mm -hmm. but more importantly we know that unemployment is really bad for your mental health you know we know that for the in for, for anybody whether you're autistic or not mm -hmm. if you don't have a job you feel like you don't belong you don't have a purpose you don't have a routine mm -hmm. you don't have a wage you don't have a salary so you don't feel you can be independent you don't have autonomy but, you know, most of all, you feel valued and that can just make you, you know, struggle with, with depression, with mm -hmm. isolation. And, you know, in that clinic, we looked at the rates of suicidality and it was really shocking. Um, two thirds of autistic adults had felt suicidal and one, okay. third, had one third had attempted suicide. You know, so this is really, really serious. Yeah. We, pub we published this paper uh, in the Lancet Psychiatry, which is like a, a top journal in the field. Right. Um, but it was really as a wake-up call to say if you don't, if you if you leave autistic people without support, if you don't if you don't help them into the workplace, then this is the outcome. You know, and it's a huge cost to the individual and to society if you've got people in the mental health system, um, and you know the tragedy of wasted lives. And particularly in the case of completed suicide, the tragedy mm -hmm. for the whole family. You know. And do you think that it's primarily this connection between the education system really not being able to, really not being set up to prepare people for adulthood? Or do you think that there are other variables in our society, expectations in the workplace, for example, uh, just the, the, regular way that interviews and and that kind of vetting go what are some yeah. other things like that 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 are also barriers to 
organizations yeah. being able to take advantage of these fantastic brains and these these folks being able to contribute. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So even if they have got qualifications academically, if they've managed to you know get through their high school exams, maybe get a college degree, when it comes to applying for a job, you do need communication skills conventionally. You know, mm -hmm. you need to lay out your curriculum vitae in a way that might impress a potential employer. You need to turn up to an interview and, you know, often the interviewer is looking for eye contact, yeah. it's looking, looking for verbal fluency, mm -hmm. looking to see how, if your facial expression is appropriate. You know, these are all things that autistic people struggle with, but, you know, but if we, if we say, well, jobs are only for people who can do the social skills, effectively we're discriminating against a group on the basis of their disability. Yes. And we would never get away with that as employers if it was a physical disability. Mm -hmm. If we said, well, if you, if you can't walk up the stairs because you're in a wheelchair, we won't give you the job. That, that would be illegal in terms of, you know, uh, equality and, um, uh, you know, uh, equality of opportunity and discrimination against uh, a particular group in society. But we seem to be doing that for autistic mm -hmm. people. How could we all make a difference? People well, listening, I, I mean, you're, you've, you're doing your part by publishing yeah, this yeah. call to action and, and what can <laughs> the rest of us do? Well, you know, so if you if you run a business, whether it's just a small business, you know, I don't know, baking bread, um, or if it's a big company, you know, you could think about, could I hire an autistic person? Mm -hmm. Could they make a contribution to my business? And if you are open-minded about the selection process, instead of having like a face-to-face -face interview where you're looking for social skills, why not give the person a chance, you know, set them a task which is relevant to the job. Right. You know, I, I've come across companies that say to the, the, the candidate for a job, here are some Lego blocks or Lego bricks. Let's see what you can build. You know, or let's see what you know different kind of patterns you can create, mm -hmm. and that gives a clue to the employer that this prospective candidate, you know, has uh, imagination, and that they have a very logical mind, which might be very relevant to the particular job that they need to fill. So it's just all about the employer being making reasonable adjustments, mm -hmm. either at the interview stage, or even if the person gets the job, reasonable adjustments at work. If the person, the autistic person, finds it very difficult to concentrate in an open open plan office with everybody talking in the background, then see if you can find a quiet room somewhere where they can work at their best and show their potential. It's not it's not expensive for the employer. You know, these are small adjustments, just like we would provide a wheelchair ramp mm -hmm. for, for somebody in a wheelchair to be able to access work. And fulfill their potential. Yes, very reasonable. Now there are some organizations that sort of specialize in this, right, in sort of helping companies to alter their methods and processes to make a more autistic friendly workplace. And do you, you, do, you do some work with some of those organizations? Uh, so I'm on the advisory board of one company called Auticon, mm -hmm. which stands for Autistic Consultants. Um, and they they started off in Europe, uh, in Germany, I think, 
but they're now in many European countries, including the UK, whilst we're still in Europe. <laughs> and, uh, and I think they just opened in the US, but they help place autistic people into jobs, particularly in the IT sector. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, I'm I'm seeing other industries opening up, who want to, who want to show that you know that neurodiversity is important, just like gender diversity is important, mm-hmm. and ethnic diversity is important. So is neurodiversity. So a company that I'm working with is Universal Music. Um, they, they they operate globally, uh, but they're aware that a lot of musicians may either be autistic or have a lot of autistic traits because mm-hmm. they love musical patterns. You know, yeah. think back think back to that bone flute 40,000 years ago and that kind of pattern-making, pattern-seeking mind. Mm-hmm. But they might be in the industry because they, they're great sound engineers. They, you know, they've got, they, they, they pay attention to detail and they're looking for patterns in, on the engineering side. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they, and, and more importantly, they want to make their contribution to society as an employer. They don't want to be like closing the doors to a whole um, set of people, autistic people, right. and, and other neurodiverse people, people with dyslexia, people with ADHD, people with mm-hmm. a, a range of different brains who deserve to work just like anyone else. And have a lot to contribute. Absolutely. Very important work. Well, this is such a fascinating topic, and I'm really in awe of your research, and I appreciate that your major conclusion is that we really need to, as a society, change how we treat people with neurodiverse brains. I wholeheartedly agree, and I just want to say thank you for sitting down to talk to me today. Well, thank you very much. For, I mean, it's been a, a, an important, I think, fun conversation. I know we've touched on a lot of depressing elements, but you know, I think what I'm hoping for is that by focusing on the positive sides, the positive side of autism, the strengths as well as the challenges, mm-hmm. you know, we can change the way we think about autism. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Simon Baron Cohen. It was exciting to me how many topics we were able to cover in the course of just an hour. And after our conversation, Simon and I talked about how many other topics we could also dive deeper into. So we're definitely going to have him back in to talk about some of his other research at a later date. I highly recommend that you pick up a copy of his book, The Pattern Seekers. I think he's made a considerable contribution here not just to brain science, but also to the ongoing conversation of how we treat people with different brains. You can listen to our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. We always appreciate your reviews and ratings if you're so inclined. And if you have show ideas or a question for us, email us at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com or find us on Instagram or Facebook at, at Autism Therapies. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.